and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson, excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. As Strong Skills... Our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. We believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication, and today's guest is definitely going to talk about communication, but labeling these skills as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of them. So what are we doing at Strong Skills? We are transforming how companies, executives, athletes, and sports teams value these skills by providing one-on-one coaching and interactive workshop experiences. Through those experiences, we hope that our society will start calling these skills for what they are. They are strong skills. If you are interested in learning more about our work, feel free to visit our website at strongskills.co. Once again, that's strongskills.co. Additionally, one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. The teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase your copy. And you can also listen to the book via audiobook at Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your support. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our past conversations, we'd appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. I can't tell you how many people have found my book via Amazon reviews or have found this podcast and are listening because they actually found the podcast via iTunes reviews and ratings. So it really does make a difference and we can't tell you how grateful we are for your continued support. Now to today's guest. Sunil Gupta's had quite a journey thus far in his life. He's been part of successful businesses that have exited. He's been part of a company like Groupon that has had highs that are higher than most of us can imagine and lows that were accompanying those highs. He's run for office and and not won and seen what it's like to not be successful in his attempt to run for Congress. He also is a Harvard teacher and instructor. So he's a teacher and his new book backable takes you on a journey through all of his experiences, his highs, his lows, what he's learned in studying some of the most backable people in the world. And he's really come to this conclusion that backable people are convicted that they're convicted in their ideas and they don't necessarily have to have charisma. And so he's going to talk about today, all that he learned in writing this book backable and how we can be more backable, no matter what we're doing, if we're applying for a new job or we want a promotion at work, or we want to go raise venture capital money or fundraise or whatever it is that we may be doing. So Sunil is somebody who's a very thoughtful guy and he's really done the work to try to unpack What does it mean to be backable? So I know you're going to love this conversation with Sunil. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Sunil 
Gupta. So Neil, so excited to hit the record button and have some of the conversations that we've been having the last few weeks off air and hopefully share it with our listeners. And a big shout out to Scott Diloff, a mutual friend who connected us a while back uh, when you were running for office and then reconnected us as you've gone into this journey in this world that you're in today, which we're certainly going to get into. What I loved about your book was there was a personal element to it. There was, I could, I felt like I got to know you better while I was reading it. And where I'd love to start is just the introduction, the conclusion really shouts out your mom. I think you even acknowledge your mom uh, in the, in, in the, uh, what's it called? The dedication. Uh-huh. I'd love, I'd love to share your mom with the world a little bit and, yeah. and also your family. Cause I think your family story and, and your family journey is, is a pretty remarkable one. Yeah. You know, I, I, my mom is in a lot of ways, I think the basis for this book, uh, she grew up in a refugee camp on the border of Pakistan and India at no running water, no electricity, and somehow got it in her mind that she wanted to be an engineer with Ford Motor Company. And her parents get behind this dream, this, this, I think, you know, at the time, pretty impossible sort of vision, uh, but they get behind it and they save every penny they have. They get her on a boat to the United States. She comes to the country, gets a scholarship to Oklahoma State University. The day after she graduates, she gets in a car and she drives to Detroit, Michigan. And she apply, you know, finds a way to get herself in a room with a hiring manager. And you know, this hiring manager walks in and he looks at her resume. Then he looks at her application and he, and he says, wait a second, are you applying for the job of an engineer? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, I'm sorry. We actually don't have any female engineers working here right now. Because see, this was the 1960s. And while Ford Motor Company was in its heyday, I mean, it had thousands of engineers on staff. Not a single one of them was a woman. And so my mom is like deflated in this moment. She, she gets up and she she grabs her resume and grabs her purse and she begins to walk out of the room. And then almost in this last sort of ditch moment, she turns around and she looks this hiring manager in the eyes and she tells him her story. She talks about all the struggle that went into her being in this country, being in Detroit, being in this very room. And then she says to him, look, if you don't have any female engineers on staff, then do yourself a favor and hire me now. And this, this hiring manager is so moved by her story that he ends up taking a chance on this refugee from the other side of the world. And, and, that's, and that's how Dementi Hingarani, now Dementi Gupta, my mom, becomes Ford Motor Company's first female engineer. So Sunil, I, I want to go to the dinner table and you and your brother Sanjay are growing up and you've got mom and you've got dad. Yeah. You mentioned a dream and she had this dream to do something remarkable. Other people would call it crazy, right? Other people would say, there's no way you can do that. There's no right. way that's possible. What was the communication like from your parents to you and your brother as kids? Is it related to dreams? Yeah. I, I think that the word impossible was, was not allowed inside our house, right? It was just not a word, especially one of the use around my mom. Um, and I, and I think that her story, uh, in so many ways was like, all right, well, obviously it is possible if, 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 if we are here right now having dinner together, it shows you what is possible. Um, you know, and I, and I think, um, you know, the example that I would, that, 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 that's so clear to me is, you know, for my older brother, he's a practicing doctor in suburban Michigan and sort of has this idea that, you know, we, that he could be on television, you know, reporting health on healthcare. Right. And, 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 but at the time, no journalism experience, no, no, no on air experience, but again, like not, not the kind of thing that you can kind of bring to the dinner table and say, you know, that's just too, that's not, that's not going to work. And I remember when, when Sanjay came home and he was, you know, I was, I was in college and both of us were home at the same time and we all had dinner together. And he's like, this, you know, this is something that I, I'd, I'd like to explore. And my mom sort of being like, look, then, then go do it. You know, nothing, nothing, nothing will, will hold you back. Like, go, 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 go. <laughs> right. And, and so he, he does. And it, it, it's funny how, I think parallel his story is with hers because he ends up in a room with the folks at CNN 
then again, they're sort of evaluating him as somebody that they've never really hired before. Like he doesn't fit the prototype. He doesn't fit the standard. Um, but at the same time, I think in the room is able to communicate, I think such a deep level of empathy and passion for this idea of reporting these stories that he's been seeing as a, as a surgeon. Um, and, uh, and, and it was really compelling for them. And so they decided to give him a shot. And that's how Dr. Sanjay Gupta at CNN got his start. And I'm so curious because here you are, you're on a podcast with me. You've got a book, you're a speaker, you're a performer and your brother is on TV. I turn on CNN. Hey, there's your brother, right? <laughs> Where does the performance side come from for the two of you? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good question. I, I, I think, um, you know, early on, I, I think my, we always had a, we always had a passion, I think for storytelling. And, and part of the reason for that is that, you know, my mom as a, as a refugee didn't really come with a lot. Like when they left, when they had to flee, they, they left everything behind. And so I, I think that they, as a family, you know, really got accustomed to the idea that these memories weren't going to live on through objects. They were going to live on through stories. And so I think growing up, my mom told a lot of stories. And I think Sanjay and I both, I think, really got accustomed to, you know, the, I think the power uh, of a good story and how, how, how sticky that can be and, and the lessons that can come from that. And I, I think that that's, that's kind of been the thing. And, and Sanjay is a Sanjay's a fantastic storyteller. He's 10 years older than me. And so it was almost like I got a double dose. I got my mom telling me great stories, but then I got my brother Sanjay telling me great stories. And I think that that just kind of, I think that really sort of shaped, I think, who I am. Him being 10 years older, so he's 18, you're eight. Mm -hmm. What was that like growing up? I, my, my dad is 10 years older than his youngest brother. There's, yeah. there's a, a sister in between, but you know, my dad being 10 years older than his younger brother, he often talks about their relationship being different than what you would think of as a typical brother relationship. So I'm just curious with the age gap, what was that like for you? Yeah. Up? Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in a lot of ways, he's like a third parent, you know, uh, you know, so I think that from the age of, you know, being born to the age of seven, when he, you know, when he left the house when I was seven to go to college, but, but before that, I think the first seven years, he very much was, you know, a third parent. And, you know, my, my parents both worked really, really hard. They worked long hours. And so was Sanjay. I mean, Sanjay, Sanjay, like literally taught me how to walk you know, and, and, and taught me the alphabet. And, and, and it just, you know, I think that, I think if you've ever seen the movie Inside Out, you know, there, there, there is this notion of core memories, right? And there are a few memories that almost lay the foundation for, for everything else. And some of those moments of like, you know, us, you know, lip syncing the 80s songs and like, you know, uh, playing in the backyard and him teaching me how to like, you know, play soccer. Those are core memories, the core memories for me. So, I, you know, I think that I think that but then I think that after he went to college, you know, there was I didn't get to see him as much. You know, he, he was busy with his thing. And, and I think that that, uh, you know, that was sort of our, our time almost apart. But then when I turned 18, I ended up uh, and he was 28 at the time. We both ended up in Washington D.C. together. He got a fellowship at the White House, and I, I had I got an internship at the White House. And so we were both in D.C. And it was like this summer where we like reconnected and and became like you know became really really close. And it's just been it's been close ever since. It's interesting. So my dad has been successful in business and a little bit more public profile, and especially in our community in Washington D.C. Everywhere I go, people will say, oh, you're, you're Bruce's son. And uh, for a long time, I was like, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then they would just go, I love your dad. I love your dad. Like everywhere I would go and still to this day. <laughs> and I remember for a long time, I would introduce myself and say, I'm Brian. And I wouldn't necessarily say my last name. This is a little different from you because you even talk about in the book, Gupta being a popular Indian name. Uh, <laughs> that's actually one of the reasons I think your, your parents ended up together, which is a really cool story, which we can, we can share. But 
I, I, thought, I think I've had my own journey with how I think about my relationship with my successful dad. And I'm curious for you, as, as you've seen your brother become a quote unquote star or famous or whatever you want to attach to his career, how, how have you evolved in how you think about celebrity or fame or, or being recognizable or even your name and, and how you think about that? And, and I'd love to riff on that with you a little bit. Yeah, sure. I, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's a good question. I often wonder whether things would be different if Sanjay and I were closer in age, right? Like would, would there be, would there be a more competitive sort of relationship? I think for, for, for me, he's always kind of been like my Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and, and that's just not going to, that's not going to change. Like it's just, it's, it's the way that our relationship is set up, but would it have been different if, if we were much, much, you know, closer, I, I closer in age. I don't know, um, but you know, it, 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 I do have these funny moments, and and uh, and I I, I just you know, I, I think that they're I, I'll share one with you. It's funny, like you know, every time I'm with Sanjay, people, you know, this is pre-pandemic when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, when we're walking we're walking together down the street, people will come up and they'll say, hey, you know, can I get a, can I get a an autograph or can I get a photo, right? Um, and uh, and I'm used to that sort of happening. Um, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I was walking down the street just alone. And this like 16 year old comes up and he's like, he's like, Hey, can I get a, can I get a, can I get a selfie? Can I get a photo with you? And I'm like, Oh yeah, sure. You know, Hey, look at that. And so we are kind of, you know, we're kind of in selfie mode and he's got his arm extended and, uh, and he's right about, he's right about to take the photo. And at the last second he yells out to his friend, he's like, Hey Jim, come get in this photo with Dr. Sanjay Gupta's oh. brother. <laughs> Wait, but he knew you were the brother. He knew I was a brother. Yeah. Oh man, and you're yeah. laughing about it, which is awesome. Oh yeah, no, I mean, look, it's it's it, it's it's funny. It's you know, look, I mean, in some ways, I think it kind of does. You know, I can understand where the question comes from because I get it a lot of like, is that tough? Um, but there's a flip side to it, which is that like, it, it actually can kind of ease things up a little bit, which is, you know, he, he's done, he's done a lot. My parents have enough to brag to their friends about. I don't really have to like, you know, I don't have to own any of that table. Right. And, 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 it, and it, and it can be, it can be freeing. And I, and I think, um, I think the fact that like, he's awesome and, and is, and it just like, I think we love each other so much. And then he's, he's, he's a great teacher it's almost like I kind of had the best of, I really do kind of feel like I have the best of everything. Yeah. Cause I often get like, do you feel as if you're in the shadow of your yeah. dad? And I really feel like I'm more on his shoulders. I think I'm just fortunate that I got to learn and grow and still learn from my dad. And I, I, I did make a transition at some point to being very comfortable saying, yeah, I'm Brian Levinson and saying my last name and, and being proud of it. And when someone comes up to me now and says something great about him, I'm like, yeah, you know what? How lucky am I? Uh, you're right. hundred <laughs> percent. And, totally. but I think it's just, it was awkward for, there was a time in my life where I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know. I was like, okay, yeah. What do you, what do you want me to do with that? Um, but I think it's also different as a brother or a dad or th those dynamics. Um, but I, I was just curious about it. The, the storytelling piece I want to go into a little bit. One of my favorite parts yeah. of your book was, I didn't know this. And this is one of those where you've been in the speech writing world, you've been in the po political world, and you explain that a great speech involves I, you, and we. Hmm. I'd never heard that before. That hmm. was news to me. And that was like a massive takeaway so much so that I just gave that to one of my clients who had a big speech right now as we're recording. Huh. She's giving a speech to her company. And we said, all right, I, you, we, and that framework I think is really powerful. And to give people context here, I basically, Hey, talk about yourself and your story. You talk about the person in your audience. We talk about how we can do something great together. Mm -hmm. And I actually thought about mapping I, you, we on top of like Simon Sinek's why, how, what, like the I is the why I believe in. Huh. The you is how I'm going to serve you. Like how it's almost always about how, how am I going to serve you? And then the, what 
is what we're going to do together. Yeah. And so I don't know if, and then there was another, I like to map things on top of stuff. There was another map to that, which is mission, philosophy, vision. Hmm. I is our, our mission. It's what I believe. Philosophy is you, how I'm going to show up for you. And then the vision of what we can create together. I so, love that. Um, I, I'd love to just riff on IU we a little bit yeah, with you because yeah. you do a lot of speaking. You've been in politics. Um, talk about how that's sh- shaped how you think about being backable or presenting. Yeah, you know the person who first sort of started to turn me on to this. I mean, early on in, in sort of the book writing process was uh, the head of the MacArthur Foundation, and you know it was, it was a fascinating conversation because one of the things that he told me was that, and the MacArthur Foundation, by the way, does the Genius Grant. And so, you know, just really, really fascinating people, a very, very difficult grant to get. Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator of Hamilton, is a genius recipient. And, you know, one of the things he told me that was very surprising uh, was that if you are somebody that they are considering for the grant and you are already on a clear path to success, it is clear that you are going to hit your target, you're going to hit your goals, that may actually make you a weaker candidate for this grant, not a stronger candidate, a weaker candidate. And the reason for that is because ultimately what they want to do is they want to have an impact. Like they, they want to know that, all, that, that you have, you, you're bringing certain things to the table, but, but, but you, need, you need something. There's, there's something else that you need in order to get there. There's a springboard that's needed, and we want to be that springboard. We want to have some impact on your trajectory. And and I and I he was explaining this to me as a philosophy of the of this committee. But at the same time, he was he was he was really trying to implore on me that like this is human nature. Like at the end of the day, don't we all want to know that we made a difference, that we had an impact, that we were needed in some way? You know, I'm really like I'm you know Sebastian Younger who I don't know if you've read any of this stuff. I, I, I'm fascinated by, by a lot of his work. But one of, one of the things that like he, he, you know, he's a journalist, he, he would embed himself in these very dangerous situations. And you know, one of the things he talks about is that like, there, was this, there was this war zone in Afghanistan, um, and I think it was called Korangalo Valley. I may be butchering that, but it was, it was the most dangerous place. And it was a place where you would expect that no one would want to go. And yet, it was oversubscribed with interest. People, Marines wanted to go there. They wanted to be there. And he was trying to figure out why, like, why, why is that? And one of the things that he concluded was that when you're in a dangerous situation, there is no, there's no situation where you are needed more than when, when you are, you know, in combat and there's danger everywhere. Right. And the more dangerous, the situation, the more needed you can be, right? And so that was almost peak, peak being needed was this, was this, was this, this area. And, and I, I always found that to be really interesting and fascinating. And I think it ties back to this, this idea of the story of, of we, or, you know, the book, the story, what we call the story of us, right? Which is that I need you, I need you in some way. And I, and I think that that, that can be a very powerful thing because, it's misunderstood. Oftentimes what we, what we do when we go into them is we tell the story of me, right? The story of my resume, the story of my candidacy, you know, the story of my product. But when we do that, oftentimes what we're basically saying is I got this, like I'm, I'm going to get there no matter what. Like I'm, I'm like, I, this is all about me. What I think that backable people tend to do is they, they do tell the story of me, they tell the story of you, and then they tell the story of us, how these two pieces really fit together um, and, and create this interdependent sort of story. And, and I think that, that that ends up being, I think, you know, these backable moments where it's like, oh my gosh, he, has, he or she has everything, but they don't have this one thing. Um, you know, I'll, 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 I'll very quickly tell you the story that, that kind of brings this all together for me. And, and, and you might remember this from the book, Brian, but like in the 1940s, Betty Crocker introduced instant cake mix to the market. And they were so excited about instant cake mix because they thought it was just going to sell. I mean, they thought it was going to be a blockbuster and it failed. 
they were really surprised when they found out that no one was buying this instant cake mix and they were trying to figure out why. And so they hired this psychologist named Ernest Dykta to go out into the field and start interviewing homes around the country. And what, what he finds, what he comes back with is, I think you have made the process of making a cake too easy, too simple, because you, you've effectively removed the customer from the creative process, right? All they have to do is pour water into a mix, put, put, pop it in the oven. But when the cake comes out, they don't really feel a sense of ownership of it. And so he's, his recommendation was to remove one ingredient, one ingredient. And that ingredient that they removed was the egg. So now you had to crack and mix in your own fresh egg and sales take off because now people actually felt like they were part of the creative process. To me, it all comes back to this, this story of me and the story of you, like handing you an egg, making it very clear that like, I have all the ingredients here, but I don't have, I have, I have most of the ingredients, but I don't have all the ingredients. But if we combine your egg with what I have, we can make this delicious cake together. And that's the story of us. I love it. And I think I need this. And here's why I'm an idea guy. And I get the sense that Sunil's an idea guy, given that he, he went out to Silicon Valley at a young age, got inspired and, and have been playing around with ideas, started your own company. So I have ideas all the time. And like you, I grew up in a house where dreams were acceptable and go for it. There's nothing you can't do, you know, go toward your dreams. I have amazing friends like an incredible inner circle. Wednesday night, we're recording on a Friday. Wednesday night, I bring up one of my ideas to my, my group, you know, three guys are sitting around a fire and hanging out outside and uh, doing the whole COVID outdoor hang thing. Hmm. And I bring up an idea and I find that a lot of my friends will just shut down or shoot down <laughs> my ideas. It's And my friends, I would say, from a financial standpoint, do well. Um, they are successful community members. They have families. They're great dads. But it's so fascinating. I find whenever I bring up one of my ideas, hmm. it usually gets shut down. Hmm. Hmm. What would you do <laughs> if you were in my shoes? When you bring up those ideas. Okay. So let's go, let's go a little bit deeper as well. Like, so what, what ends up happening when they shoot it down, you bring up the idea and then what happens? They tell me all the reasons why it won't work. <laughs> okay. This okay. is consistent by the way. And I find this to be most people. And I know in the book you say, you know, most people will not like your idea, but all you need is a few to love your idea. And that actually landed with me because I can just say, all right, my friends are most people. I need to go find the people that love the idea. Yeah. But I find that there are people that when you bring an idea to them, and they're not a venture capitalist. And what I loved about your book is that I think this goes so far beyond raising money for an idea. It goes into hiring, it goes into firing, it goes into presenting, whatever it is that you yeah. might be doing. But let's just stick with the idea. I find that there are people that will shoot down an idea right away. Like they'll just tell me, poke holes. Uh, the cheddars, all the reasons why he calls them the cheddars, because if you think of cheddar cheese, there are holes in, in cheese. I love that. But they will just poke holes and they won't give me one way for it to work. And I find that the people that just shoot it down and, and tell me all the reasons why it won't work, it's not all that helpful for me. But right. then I have people who say, oh, here's a way this might work. Yeah. And then there's other people who ask me questions. And then there's other people who then give me the answer to what will work based on what I created. So I re I've recognized that there are all these different types of responses or reactions to my ideas. And by the way, I have crazy ideas, but some of my ideas, I, I, I do get them won over and I've, you know, I have a book out. That was an idea, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, I'd be curious for you since you've been in so many pitches on so many different sides to this, do you notice patterns of people that are more just shoot it down, ask questions, give you their idea for how to make it successful. Do you notice that there are different types of patterns that people fall into, or is this just a figment of my imagination? I think there are different patterns. In fact, in the, in the, in the book, you know, what I, what I, what I found is that backable people tend to do what you do. They surround themselves with a circle 
a circle of people. Now that doesn't always have to be your best friends. Like when I think about a backable circle, that might be a friend, but that also might be colleagues. That might be, you know, people who, you know, just you, you enjoy sort of riffing on ideas with, and I think can be, can be somebody who can help navigate through your career. But what I, what I have noticed is that there are four distinct personalities in a, in a, in a backable circle. There might be more, but there are four that I have found in pretty much every backable circle I looked at. The, the first is your collaborator. And this is, you, you kind of just mentioned this person, somebody who's kind of building on top of your idea. They're saying, yeah, that's cool. And, and also, you know, there's this. And, and so when you're with this person, you almost feel like you're in a musical jam session together. You know, you're, 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 you're creating something together. So that's your collaborator. The second is your coach. And your coach is different than your collaborator because while your collaborator is thinking about whether your idea really fits the market or whether your idea is, you know, is going to fit the company or you know, whatever situation you're in, the coach is really thinking also about, does this idea fit you? I mean, there, there was so many times in my wife, my wife is my coach. And there's, there's so many times when she's like, yeah, that's a good idea for someone else. Right? Like you're not going to enjoy spending the next three years running with this. I can just, I know that about you. Then you need that person. I, I, one of my favorite sort of moments, I think while I was writing this book was, you know, a mentor of mine who told me the story of Martin Luther King when he was, when he was uh, thinking about taking over the, the civil rights movement, like when he was really thinking about like stepping into that leadership role and he wasn't sure whether that was the right thing for him. He was very young. He was in his late twenties, early thirties. And so he goes to his mentor, a guy named Howard Thurman, and he asked him what he should do. And one of the things that MLK says is, you know, I think that this movement is going to be incredibly, I mean, it's going to be, it's very, very important for the world. And Howard Thurman says to him, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. And I, I do think that we, as idea creators, no matter what situation you're in, you know, you're working in a working inside a company, trying to run with your own idea, whatever it is, I do think that we often spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about whether it's good for the market, whether it's good for the company, whether it's good for the organization. Sometimes we don't spend enough time thinking about, hey, is this good for me? Like, does this actually make me come alive? And the reason that matters is not just because it feels good. The reason it matters is because whenever you're trying to do something new, you're trying to create any type of change, you're going to be on the other side of doubt. You're going to be on the other side of rejection. And if you don't have enough emotional juice in the tank, then you know, you're not doing the idea a service. And so your coach is that person who I think is really going to be reflective of, is this something that really makes you tick? Hey, Sunil, let's just dive in yeah. here a little bit. And I know you have other ones, but yeah. I love the idea of feeling alive. And a few years ago, I used to study positive psychology a lot and the science of happiness. And I love it. I think it's fascinating. And I started to realize, wow, my goal shouldn't be to try to be happy. My goal should try to be to feel alive. And huh. it's actually the thing I've struggled with the most during the pandemic is I find it harder to feel alive. I feel alive when I'm at a concert. I feel alive when I'm at a ball game. I feel alive when I'm watching my kids play at a playground. I feel alive when I play golf with my buddies. I feel alive when I go out to dinner. I feel alive when I go to the Kennedy Center and watch a show, right? Yeah. Like there's all kinds of different things that I usually feel alive with that have been mitigated because mm -hmm. of a shutdown or quarantine or a pandemic. And yeah. so feeling alive has become like a, a ethos for me. And actually it's been a downside at some, in some regards, because this podcast, for example, every marketer would say, who's your target audience. And I was always like, I don't know my book. Who's your target audience. I'm like, I don't know. I, I just wrote the book that makes me feel alive. I just have yeah. the podcast. I get to interview interesting people, yeah. my clients that I, that I coach. It's not niche. It's very diverse fields. And so I've always gone toward what makes me feel alive. Yeah. One of the things I love that you said in your book was that failure is boredom. I thought that was really a profound statement. And to me, boredom is the opposite of feeling alive. So there's two, two part question. Number one, when do you feel most alive? And when have there been times in your life where you were bored and you had to maybe shift out of that, that boredom space? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll start, I'll start with the first one. I mean, sorry, I'll start with the second one, which is, you know, there have been, I think, um, 
these awakening moments for me where I had set a goal and hit that goal and realized that I was miserable. And the, and, 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 and the most recent time that that happened was when I finally, finally broke through to get a job at a venture capital firm. And if you would have asked me, you know, when I was in, when I was in graduate school, like, what do you want to be doing? Right. What do you want to be doing five years from now? There were some people that sort of hemmed and hawed about the answer to that. I, I knew for sure. I was like, I want to go work at a venture capital firm on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. And then it happened. And I, I realized that I, I didn't really want to be working at a venture capital firm. Like I, I, it, was, it wasn't for me. When I got into the day-to-day of what we did, when I got into the day-to-day of like taking lots of meetings, um, but investing in very few companies and saying no to 95% of the entrepreneurs we met with, I, I, it just wasn't, it wasn't for me. It, and, and I guess, you know, it, it that wasn't the first time that that happened, by the way. I think, I, I think, but it, I'm hoping that this is the last time it does where I, I, I stop sort of following the idea of something and start following the craft of something, right? I don't, do you want to, do you, do you really want to, do you want to be a venture capitalist or do you want to invest in companies? Do you want to be a lawyer or do you want to argue cases in a courtroom, right? The difference between a career and a craft I, I think has been the distinction that has been very hard for me, I think, to absorb, but very, very important. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's life's, I think it's life's lesson, you know, uh, ultimately, like if I had to pass down a few things to my kids, I think this will be sort of one of them is to make sure you don't confuse your career for a craft and, and vice versa, because they're different and, and you need to make sure that you're, you're thinking about both and the craft is very important. What would you be doing on a very, on a day-to-day basis, irrespective of your LinkedIn profile, right? Um, so I, I think that that's, that, that, that for me has sort of been the, these moments where I realized that I wasn't really alive. Um, I, I, I had, I had, you know, I guess the, the profile that I wanted, the resume that I wanted, but I didn't feel alive. Um, you know, gosh, you know, Brian, I, I feel like, you know, when you were talking about COVID and, and talking about sort of the situation that you're in right now, I can identify with that quite a bit. You know, and and I think a lot of people can, and and the thing that I I'm sure you have seen, that I have seen a lot of as well, is I think that you have a lot of people who almost seem like they are. It's just it's astonishing how many people are disengaged with what they do on a day to day basis, and and, um, you know, it's almost in some ways like a pilot light that won't light. Right. It's just like there's no flame, but you can kind of hear that tick, 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 tick. So it's trying. Right. And they're showing up to the job. They're showing up to work. um, But there's no flame there. And it's crazy when someone has that flame because it, it, it literally it's so apparent when someone when someone's like their their flame is lit like it, it, it shines so bright that other people can see it. And so I've kind of made myself a deal, which is that. So long as um, I can put food on the table, so long as I can, I can, I can, I can pay for the essentials of what what it is that my family needs. I'm going to be doing only stuff that that makes me come alive. For me, that tends to be getting back to to you know conversations with my mom around the dinner table. It comes back to stories. I I, I love I love I love like gathering processing and telling other people's stories like that's just that makes me so happy especially if that's a story that i think could actually change someone else's perspective and outlook that that's that's what makes me tick that's what that's what makes me come alive so connect some dots for me because as i was talking about how i've approached things where i've just sprayed and just done things that excite me and enjoy me yeah as i said the downside of that is that i don't always focus on who i'm going to serve. And um, in your book, you even talk about writing for a specific person. Uh-huh. Uh, you mentioned Tim Ferriss and um, the process that he goes through to, to write. And as, as you think about coming alive and doing something for somebody specifically, I think where yeah. I've had some friction there is, all right, I'm just going to do this thing. And instead of focusing so much on who my target audience is, I'm just going to create 
And then we'll find out who enjoys it and I'll find out who likes it. And I'm not suggesting that that's the best way to go. So I'm curious for you, how you blend focusing on, on a niche or someone specific while also just focusing on what makes you feel alive. Yeah. You know, in the book, we talk about this idea of casting a central character and the way that we, the way that we arrived on this is when I was pitching my company and I was getting rejected by every investor that I, I, I was pitching, one of the people who ended up passing was, was Tim Ferriss and Tim Ferriss, uh, you know, I, I thought he was the ideal investor. It was a, it was a, it's a healthcare health coaching company right over your mobile phone. He had just written the four hour body. And so I felt like, it, it, you know, this is a great fit. Um, he ended up passing, but it was, it was one of my more memorable pitches because what I did is I, I, I basically laid out in the first 80% of the presentation, I laid out the market, talked about the rising rates of obesity and hypertension and diabetes. And then at the very end of the pitch, I told the story of my father. I told, I told Tim how my, my dad, when he was in his 40s, had an emergency triple bypass surgery. I was around nine years old and, and I remember showing up to the hospital and just like feeling like he had aged 25 years overnight. And, you know, when we left the hospital, we, we left with a few sheets of paper that they give you. And one of them is like, you know, how to eat. And on that, on that piece of paper, I still remember it said like, eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. You know, like we, we were an Indian family. We ate Indian food at home. You know, there's nothing on that sheet about like chicken tikka masala, you know? And so we had to customize our life in, in a way, and we got some help doing that. Insurance helped pay for a nutritionist that helped us really customize things. And um, that I believe that that's the reason that my father is still alive today. And I told Tim that story, and he was like, why are you saving that story to the very end? You know, why not, why not talk about that in the very beginning? Like, open with that open with this central character that you have in mind as you're creating this business. And then, and then talk about the numbers, then talk about the number of millions of people out there that are going through their own version of your father's story. And when I did that, it it really changed things. You know, I, I think as human beings, we aren't, we aren't pulled in by, by, by numbers. We're pulled in by stories. We're pulled in through emotion. I think it's, I think it's story and substance. I think it's a story that pulls us in. It's a substance that keeps us there. You know, and, 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 and that was a, that was a, you know, as I, as I continue to sort of watch more and more pitches, I realize that like the, the most backable people do this, you know, they, they, they'll, they'll bring the story first and then they'll, and then they'll follow it up with the substance. You know, in, in your case, I, I think it's, you know, the, the distinction that I would make is that for you having a target market from like a business analysis point of view is different than saying that there is this one person who I think about when I write, or there's just one person that I think about when I'm podcasting, you know, or, or doing whatever, you know, I, I spoke to, uh, I, I spoke to a producer at NPR the other day who said that he will have his hosts put up a photo of the one audience member that they, that they're talking to in that moment. Right. So that it never feels like I'm trying to mass blast this out to lots and lots of people, but that I am focused on, on one person. Now it it may reach millions of people, but just to have sort of one person in mind, I think what it does is it just makes everything sharper. You feel like you're talking to a real human being as opposed to just talking into the ether for whomever is going to grab it. I think that that is different though, than saying we need to lay out a business plan of these are the types of people that we want to reach, you know, and we want to, we want to have a highly customized content strategy and marketing strategy. I think that that's, I think that that's different. Who did you write backable for? I wrote backable for the younger version of myself. So I literally, I literally would imagine Sunil at the age of 25 and I, I would go back, I would look at photos of myself at that age. Uh, I would, I would, I would, I would look at old emails I just start. I mean, luckily, I just started using Gmail at that time, and so I could go back and read old emails. And I read a lot of like the the cold call emails that I would use. And I, I really tried to put myself in the twenty five year old psyche of of me. 
It's awesome. One of the things you talk about is being inspired before inspiring others. I would imagine that was where you got a lot of your inspiration is, is to give advice to your younger self and know that there are other people that are in your shoes that hopefully will read the book and, and not maybe make some of the mistakes that, that you made along the way. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and that's what I, that's why I love teaching. I mean, it, 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 and, 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 you know, I used to, I used to have the line of like, I'm teaching so that you don't make the mistakes that I make. I'm actually, uh, the way I feel about it now is like, I want you to make different mistakes. Don't make the same mistakes, but go make some mistakes. Because I, I, I do think Bill Gates is right, which is that success is a lousy teacher. Right. And, and I think that we, we sort of, it, it is, it is a very special thing. I feel very, very privileged when I get to sort of be reflective about all this, this mess that I've created and, and sort of turn it into, you know, some sort of teaching plan in this case, through a book and through the, the lectures I give my students. I mean, it's, 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 it really is a gift. You talk about failure. You ran for Congress and you didn't win. Right. Um, in case anyone was wondering, Sunil's not in Washington, <laughs> I'm not a member of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> if he was, if he was, we would still be recording this over zoom, but we would maybe be getting lunch or coffee in a, in a few months here. But, um, what inspired you to, to run? Why, why dive into that, that world and that ecosystem and walk us through a little bit, what went into your mind to, to run for office? Yeah, you know, I, I I got interested in politics pretty early on. When I when I was a kid, I, I was I was I was the kid who joined campaigns. I knocked on doors. I I I I I, I sort of I felt I felt like I was sort of gravitated towards that process. And then you know, in two thousand four, I ended up getting a job with the Democratic National Committee. And it was one of those moments, Brian. You're talking about like these moments that don't make you tick. Well, I w- I was working as a consultant at the time, and I it was I was clear like the pilot light was out. But it, but you know the presidential campaign was sort of gearing up and and I, and I I wanted to be a part of it in some way so I applied for this very junior junior level role at the Democratic National Committee and 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 I ended up getting the role and so what ended up happening was um, you know the convention that year was in Boston and I was backstage and I got to sort of you know, whenever you're sort of backstage at a Democratic National Convention, it's like all the it's like all the expected sort of faces. And that case, back then it was like the Clintons and the Gores and the Liebermans. And but there was one face that I did not recognize. And it was this state senator from Illinois. And I even asked the backstage manager, do you know who that is? He's like, actually, I don't. Uh, but he is the keynote. He you know, he's giving a keynote speech, but I can't remember his name. And uh, and and so uh, that was the night that Barack Obama gets on stage and, and, you know, he, I think changes his, his career. And I think changes sort of politics, the trajectory of our politics, um, through that one speech, which, which by the way, was less than 10 minutes long. And, um, while the world was watching him, I felt like I got to watch the world because I was watching it from this backstage perspective. And it's just like a tidal wave ripping through the crowd. And I just, you know, I, I think that moment fundamentally, I think it changed me. You know, I, I think I became one of, I think, millions of people who I think became very interested, even more interested in politics, um, the power, I think, of, 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 of what, you know, what is possible, you know. Um, and uh, but I, I will tell you that as I started to really understand his story, as I started to do my own research, what I found interested me even more, which was that. Four years before that speech was given in the year 2000, Barack Obama ran for Congress and he lost. Not, 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 he didn't run for Senate, didn't run for president, ran for Congress and he lost and he lost big, lost by a two to one margin. But what was even more surprising to me was the way that he was received, what people said about him. They described him as boring, stilted, professorial. There was a guy named Ted McClelland who was, he was a journalist that covered the campaign. He said that Barack Obama was so dry that he sucked the air right out of the room. Right? And, and, then, and then four years later, he is this just like bastion of hope and inspiration and, and energy. And, and I think the thing that I sort of, I, 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 um, I continue to sort of take to this day is that the version of the story that we often see in people was not how it began. Right. And that was true of, of, of nearly every backable person that I studied for this book, from Oscar-winning filmmakers and Michelin star chefs, iconic founders, 
leaders within companies, community organizers. Like we see today this very potentially charismatic version of them, but they, they have found a way to step into their power. But if you rewind, if you rewind to an earlier chapter in the book, you get a very, very different story. And I think when, when, when you begin to realize that I can, it can be very empowering. We're going to talk about conviction, but before we do, so Obama lost, yeah. you lost by way less. Yours was a tight race. So <laughs> can we assume that you are going to be a president of the United States one day, like you're going to use <laughs> this, this loss and, and become a Senator. And then we can see you in 12 years or whatever it's going to be on stage at the next DNC and maybe I'll be backstage taking pictures or whatever technology we use. Or no. I mean, I, 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 I love the fantasy. Like I love, I love, I love, we could just go live that. It sounds, it sounds great. I mean, Dreams. Know, mom would yeah. say there's nothing mom, you can't do. That's mom, right. mom that's definitely right. thinks you could become president. I know yeah, she doesn't have any doubts. She doesn't, she doesn't. And, 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 and no, but I, I think, I think that, you know, for me, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of one step at a time when I run again, I don't know. I, I, you know, it's one thing I will say to anybody who might be listening and thinking about running and has a family, I will say it is a family decision. You know, like it really is because when you're running, your family is running. Um, it just, it is very, very difficult to separate those two. And, and so, um, you know, make 100% sure that your, that your spouse or your, your, your partner is, is, is on, is on board, right? It, 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 it matters. And I think it's like one thing that I didn't do enough of is just making sure that Lena was like a hundred percent, like in this with me. And I mean, it was tough. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was tough on our marriage. And so I, I, you know, we came through it fine. And I think even stronger, but it was tough in the moment. And so that's, that's the one piece of advice I wish I would have given myself back in the day. Conviction. So as you're backstage, I'm watching, I'm probably a small TV and I turn to my buddies and say, that dude's going to be president one day. And I'm sure I wasn't alone after that speech. Like I, it was no question. I go, that dude's going to be president one day. And it's interesting because when I first met my wife, we were at a bar and I told everybody at the bar that I was going to marry that girl one day. Now I had a couple of drinks, so who knows what I was thinking, but I said, I'm going to marry this girl one day. So conviction is something that I think I come to pretty, pretty easily. And, and, and it's something as I think about my upbringing, I am one of three boys and I think my parents we're very comfortable with all of us speaking our mind and speaking yeah. our beliefs and speaking up when we felt like something was wrong or speaking towards something that we felt was right. Yeah. And I love that you point to conviction over charisma uh, as being more backable and people that are convicted. Yeah. However, one of the things I'm working on and I continue to work on and think a lot about is the downside of conviction, which mm. I think because I grew up in this family where you could speak your mind and speak up in what you believe in, sometimes I'm not curious mm. and sometimes I don't stay in curiosity long enough. And I think about where we are in a society, politically, uh, social justice, racially, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, pandemic, how you go about it. I think we have a lot of people that are convicted but haven't been curious enough before they get to their conviction. Yeah. So I'd love to rhyme with you on curiosity and conviction and, and how you think about it. I mean, I think it's such a good point. And, you know, one of the things that I, I continue to sort of kind of rub up against in the book is like, there are a lot of backable people out there that aren't necessarily good for the world. And they haven't, they haven't made a, a, what I would consider a net positive impact on the world and, and, and arguably a net negative impact on the world. Um, you know, and, and, and there, you know, that you take, take, you know, Theranos as an example, I think take, take fire festival as an example. And, and I think the thing that, you know, if you watch the documentaries and you sort of know the, the story of the founder of fire festival, Billy McFarland, you know, th this is somebody who had incredibly high conviction and, he was able to convince these highly reputable investors. These were not, you know, these are people with, uh, these are people with track records that ended up backing his idea, even though it was very half-baked and, and, you know, he was able to convince them to sort of take a chance on this. Um, and I think it was a disaster for, for everybody, everybody involved. And McFarland, I think is still in prison right now, serving, serving a sentence, um, you know, and I think that I think so. I think that you know, you compare that to 
stories of the people that I was, uh, I really wanted to try to serve with this book. You know, for example, someone like Bob Ebeling, who was an engineer on the NASA team that sent the Challenger up to space. Ebeling knew, like he had, he had data that, that said that the, the rubber rings were going to seal overnight and that was going to cause something bad to happen. So he calls a meeting, he gets all of his colleagues into a room and he says, look, we shouldn't, we shouldn't go through with the launch. And he was dismissed. And they end up taking the Challenger to space and it disintegrates within 90 seconds, killing everybody on board. And, and, you know, Ebeling was interviewed late in his life. He's passed on now. Late in his life, he was, he, he was interviewed. And one of the last things he said was, look, God shouldn't have chosen me for that job because I had all the facts. I had all the data. And I yeah, still wasn't able to persuade the people inside that room. So I think conviction, you know, I, my job, I, I think if I'm doing my job right here with this book, I'm, 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 I am helping high integrity people, high integrity people, you know, figure out how to sell an idea and how to build that conviction. And, and, and the thing that I learned is that, or, you know, what I thought, at least when I was, when I was writing this book is that conviction was going to be, or, you know, people who were backable, were going to have a certain style of communication. They were going to, you know, they were going to speak with hand gestures and eye contact and, and perfect pacing. But I, I did not find that to be the case at all. You know, I found that there were certain people who certainly were gregarious and, and extroverted, but you also had people who were very shy and, and introverted, and they just had their own sort of speaking style that was not very Dale Carnegie-esque, that was not very Toastmasters-esque. But, the, and I, and I, you know, one of the examples that I give in the book, which I, I think is, is, is worth checking out, is if you go watch the number one most popular TED Talk of all time, what you'll find is a guy named Sir Ken Robinson, who gives this like fascinating talk on education. But it's a very unTed-like presentation. He's got one hand in his pocket. He's got, you know, he 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 naturally walked with a bit of a slouch. He he meanders on and off script, but it's brilliant. It's it's a brilliant talk, and and so it, it, what I found is that it's not it is not charisma that makes a person convincing. It, it's con, it's conviction. It's conviction. It's taking the time to convince yourself before you try to convince others. One of the things you brought up, Ryan, is then like. What about the curiosity and how does that all sort of fit in? And one of the things that I, that, that I, I talk about in the book and, and that I recommend is that, you know, when you're in situations and potentially you, you were in this situation when you're hanging out with your friends outdoor with your social distance hang, is that like if an idea comes to mind and you feel high conviction for it in the moment, then by all means, share it, right? There's no time like the present. But if you don't, then what backable people tend to do is hold on to it. They, they sort of resist that temptation to share it in the moment. And the reason for that is because how many times have we been in a situation where we share an idea, we don't get the response that we're looking for, and we feel deflated. And so we sort of tuck it into a drawer, a mental drawer, and we kind of walk away from it. One of the things we found is that inside companies, most great ideas don't get killed inside the conference room or inside formal conversations. They actually get killed inside the hallways. They get killed around water coolers because we share them in these almost in these very casual situations, when 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 I when the idea comes to mind, we don't get the response we need, then we walk away from it. So backable people take the time to build that conviction. But there is one important part of building that conviction, which I, I think kind of gets to your question, which is that when you're building conviction, you want to fall in love with the problem. You don't want to fall in love with the solution. Fall in love with the problem, but not the solution. So for me, just very practically, what I do is I, I write. I'm, I, there, there are all sorts of different techniques on how people build conviction when they're taking what we call incubation time to build that, to build that, you know, to convince yourself first. For me, it's just pieces of paper. I'm writing my idea out free form, but I always sort of, I always sort of let myself meander. I let myself wander, right? Because oftentimes what I'll find is that as I dig deeper and deeper and deeper, the problem stays the same but the solution starts to morph. And that, and that is where people sort of, I think, go in one of two ways. Either they say, no, 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 this is my solution. I'm married to that. That's the way it's going to be. 
or they allow themselves to flexibly sort of go with that flow, go in a different direction. And what we found is over and over again, when people were able to let themselves wander into new directions, they found themselves in territory that they, that they didn't expect. And that ended up being sort of the genesis of a, of a, of a brilliant idea. I love polarities and I think about curiosity and conviction as a polarity and when I need to be super curious and when I need to be convicted, because there does come a time where you do have to believe, all right, this is the solution. We're going to trust in it. We're going to believe in it. And we have to shoot our shot. Maybe it doesn't work. Then we get data and information and then we adjust and we adapt. And some people never get to the point of shooting the shot because it's not perfect. And and they're still curious and they never even test it. It's interesting for me because I think what happens and what I developed as a kid when I was five foot, nothing, a hundred, nothing, I was small. And so I had a chip on my shoulder as a kid. And so when they told me, yeah, you're too small to play basketball, it was F you, I'll show you, I'm going to go play basketball. Mm. And so I think what I, my process for a long time has been to share my idea. If they don't like it, cool, I'll go show you. And that's very limiting. And yeah. it, it keeps me from exploring the possibilities of solutions to your point or alternatives to the, the problem and staying open. So I find for me, I have to work really hard at getting into curiosity mode and sort of tempering my conviction mode because my nature is actually to go toward the fight and say, all right, let's go. Like, yeah. uh, we'll, we'll go see, let's go find out. And, uh, and that part of me is helpful at times, but it also gets in the way at times. So I love the idea for me of being curious before I'm convicted and how can I step into curiosity before I come up with my conviction? And I find even as it relates to where we're at, with race in our country, for example, the more I can step into curiosity, then I actually think I'm more equipped to be convicted. And I also think that we can't just stay curious all the time. There comes a point as a leader or as a founder or as a human that you have to have conviction and go for it and not just ponder and not just wonder and not just ask others for their thoughts or opinions. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things we found is that that backable people tend to sort of set an end date for this incubation time as well. Because you're right, you can hang on to an idea forever, right? And oftentimes there is no external pressure. You know, people aren't asking you necessarily for your ideas. They're not saying, hey, Brian, what do you think about this? What are your ideas? There's so many people, I, I'm convinced everybody has an idea tucked away somewhere. Everybody does. But I think very few of us are being asked to share it, right? And it's upon us to bring that into the world. And so you can sit on your ideas for too long. And one of the techniques, just you know, really, really practical techniques that, that I, I found a lot of backable people use is they find a way to set some external pressure on themselves, right? So they, 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 will, they will say, for example, hey, Brian, I want to share an idea with you. I want to share an idea with you four weeks from now. I'm not even going to tell you what it is, no preview, but four weeks from now, can I get on your schedule and I'm going to share an idea with you? Now I have... Now I have a fixed amount of time, right? It's enough time for me to go through and incubate, but it's not, it's not endless. There's an end date to this. Well, Sunil, he can see I'm smiling ear to ear because I have an idea, of course. And by the way, my best idea ever was to sell a book of Brian's ideas. And that was going <laughs> to be the idea. So you can you can write that with me and we can collaborate on it. And it can be Brian and Sunil's ideas. We'll share it. This is the we part and and we'll make it about the two of us and you and us and, and we'll get there. Look, I, I, I love this conversation. And I love going into back. Well, I bought the book for my dad who is in the middle of trying to make an idea come come to fruition. It's actually a product that's already out there in the world. And um, so I, I sent the book to him. And I, I, as I said, I'm an idea guy. So this is really helpful for me as I continue to iterate on these ideas. Where I'd like to close with you is you talk about this concept of inevitable ideas and that mm-hmm. backers believe, talk about conviction, they believe their idea is going to happen. It's just a matter of with who, when, where, all that good stuff. But there is no question that they're going to make it come to reality. Yeah. What's inevitable for you right now? As you sit Uh here, is there an idea or is there a thing or is there a vision for yourself that you have that is inevitable? Wow, man. Um, I, I think the thing that is inevitable for me right now is how I want to raise my kids, right? Like how I want to raise my kids. Um, you know, and I, I have, I, I, I feel like, um, 
you know, every morning I ask my daughter two questions, which is, you know, what is the meaning of life? And she says, to find your gift. And I say, what is the purpose of life? And she says, to give it away. And, uh, I, you know, I think backable is all about how we, how we give our gift away. And I, I know that my mom raised me in a certain way, which was to, to do that, to find that gift and, and to find a way to give it away. And I know that like one of the most important things that I have to do is, is, to, car- is to carry that forward, to make sure that even though we, we grew up in very, very different, very different circumstances than my mom did, um, I don't want that spirit uh, to, to get lost in this, in this generational shift. Um, so I've got to preserve that. That's what's inevitable for me beautiful. If people want to follow you on social media or learn more about you or bring you into their company for a speaking gig or buy books of Backable, uh, how can they go about doing that? Yeah, just go to backable.com. Yeah. You, you, there's some free content there and there's some, there's some good stuff. You check out the book and we, and we can connect there. Awesome. Sunil. I'm at Brian Levinson on Twitter and LinkedIn, and you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Sunil, excited for your next visit to DC when you're in town doing a speaking gig and we can meet in person and we can talk about my idea. And maybe that's when we'll talk about it is. Yeah, let's put it on the schedule. And we'll put on the schedule and and maybe you'll help me uh, make it come to fruition and make it come to reality. Appreciate you. Congrats on the book. It's great. Highly recommend people check it out and looking forward to chatting with you soon. Thanks, Brian. This is awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. What I think that backable people tend to do is they they do tell the story of me, they tell the story of you, and then they tell the story of us, how these two pieces really fit together. 